This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Amanda Ripley is an investigative journalist for Time Magazine and The Atlantic. An Emerson Fellow with the New America Foundation and a graduate of Cornell University, her work has appeared in Slate, The Wall Street Journal, and The Times of London. In addition to her writing, she has appeared on ABC, NBC, CNN, Fox News, and NPR. She's spoken at the Pentagon, the United States Senate, the State Department, and the Department of Homeland Security, as well as conferences on leadership, public policy, and education. Her latest work is a New York Times bestseller entitled The Smartest Kids in the World and How They Got That Way, published by Simon & Schuster. Amanda Ripley, welcome to Thinking in Public. Thanks so much for having me. Now, where did this book come from? Just about everyone assumes there's a crisis in education, but most people don't decide to write a book about it. How did you make that decision? You know, I kept hearing about these places, these countries we hear about on the news, Finland and South Korea, and how everyone is perfect and all the children are brilliant, and I couldn't, I couldn't quite see it. You know, I couldn't visualize it. It didn't seem real. So I wanted to know two things. I wanted to know, what is it like to be a kid in these countries? And how did these countries get so smart? Because they were not always so smart, not that long ago. Now, while we're talking about how smart the kids in these countries are, maybe it'd be good to talk about how we would measure such a thing. And uh, you take us back to about the year 2000 with a test called PISA, or PISA. That's right. And you want to use multiple different measures, right? You don't want to get too fixated on one measurement. So you want to look at things like high school graduation rates and college attainment rates and economic indicators. But one, one metric that I found very compelling was this PISA test that you mentioned. This is a test that was designed specifically to try to figure out whether kids were learning critical thinking skills, whether they were learning to solve problems they'd never seen before and to make an argument. Those kinds of higher-order skills in math, reading, and science that we know are so valuable in the modern economy but are, of course, harder to teach. You know, when I looked at that test, and you introduced it by saying that in uh, the spring of 2000, a third of a million teenagers in 43 countries sat down for two hours and took a test unlike any they had ever seen. Now, I have to say I'm very interested in what came out of that, but I, as an educator, am also fascinated with the idea that you could get a third of a million teenagers to take a two-hour <laughs> test under any circumstance. I know. But it's pretty shocking. What really did that test reveal? There, there, was a, there was a pattern so that it's not just our intuitions or anecdotal evidence that there are distinguishing rates of educational attainment among these countries, but there's really something going on here. There were some shocking findings that came out of that first PISA given in 2000. It's now given every three years, as you said, to half a million 15-year-olds in about 70 countries. But that first time, you know, everybody had ideas in their head about how they were going to do on these tests, each country's education minister and leader. And in fact, there were some surprises. One surprise was that Germany did very poorly, worse even than the United States. (laughs) Germany had thought it had the best schools in the world. It was, you know, very proud of its schools and, in fact, a model for much of the world. And uh, Finland, this tiny, frozen Nordic country that had been very late to industrialize, came in at the very top of the rankings. And no one could believe this, not even even the people in Finland. (laughs) So it uh, it was fascinating to try to puzzle out why this could be. Of course, there was a period of, of denial where people just, you know, blamed it on different things. But the, those results have been, have been pretty consistent, especially for Finland, over the years. Now, in your book, you decided to look at 
several societies in terms of the question of their educational attainment among teenagers. You looked at Germany, the United States, South Korea, Poland, and Finland. How did you decide to go about this? Well, I should say that I, I should explain how we did on the PW, and then I'll help me explain why I chose the countries I did. Good. We we came we actually do relatively well in reading. We came in around twelfth in the world in reading, and this is something it's it's easy to exaggerate how badly our our education outcomes are, and they're they're not actually uh, that bad. They're they're kind of average, you know. What's surprising about that is that we are a pretty rich country and we spend more per pupil than almost all countries in the world on kindergarten through 12th grade education. So, so we're, pretty, we're pretty average. Reading, we do much, much better than we do in science and math. We came in around 17th in science and 26th, which is a painful one, in math. And this, you know, this is important. Obviously, I don't need to tell you, math is, is an incredibly important skill. It's gaining in value every day. It is a great predictor of future income and college completion. So, so math and science were clearly our weak points. So that helped me figure out, well, what, what places do we want to learn from? And if you look around the world, Finland and South Korea are always at the very top of these rankings on math and science and reading, actually, and high school graduation and other, other things. So that, that was sort of obvious, but they're two very different places. So Finland is sort of the utopia model of education, where Students do not do a ton of homework. They don't have a ton of tests to take. Uh, they don't go to after-school tutoring, typically. And yet, they're achieving these very high levels for virtually all their kids. You, don't, you see almost no variation from school to school in Finland, which is amazing. I mean, imagine being able to live everywhere, anywhere you wanted in a country and not even think twice, really, about the school. Um, so... So that is one model, the utopia model. Then South Korea is kind of the extreme version of the pressure cooker model of Asia that, you know, we always hear about where kids are studying night and day, and they take a lot of after-school tutoring and test prep, and test scores are very important. And so this is sort of, they're getting to the same place through a very different path. So I wanted to see both of those paths. And then the last country that I focused most on is Poland. And Poland has not achieved the results of Finland or South Korea yet. But Poland has dramatically improved over the past 10 years, despite having a 15% child poverty rate, which is close to that of the United States. And so in some ways, Poland is more comparable because it is a big, complicated country with a lot of distrust for the central government and significant child poverty issues. Um, so I wanted to see how they had done that, how they had seen these gains that we have not been able to get. I have to tell you, Amanda, as I read your book, I, I was pleasantly surprised. I knew it was going to be interesting, but I really thought that it might be just another book pointing out how much better other societies are doing uh, in terms of education, or on the other hand, trying to, to offer an apology for the fact that Americans really aren't doing all that badly after all. But you offer a far more sophisticated analysis, and I think the end of your book, to which we'll turn eventually, uh, really leads us to some very helpful patterns of thinking ourselves. We make civilizational choices, and, and you help to inform us about how we're making those choices. But you did a, a massive research project, first of all, and, and through a, a pretty clever uh, invention of your own as to how to do this. Talk about how you got there. Well, I knew, I knew a trick, <laughs> which is for my own reporting in the U.S., the best way to make a story true and interesting and complicated is to talk to kids if it's a story about education. And you very rarely actually see this. If you look at education stories in the daily papers and so forth, 
you don't see a lot of students quoted. So it's a little, you know, competitive advantage that I've used over the years. I can easily make my story really good just by doing this one simple thing. <laughs> so uh, don't tell anyone because this is um, a trade secret. And, uh, and so I find that kids, you know, students spend so much time in class. You forget as an adult how much time they spend contemplating their situation. They have strong opinions about what they see. They don't always see the whole picture, of course, but they know their school profoundly, and they think about it, and they have thoughts they want to share, typically. So I needed kids if I was going to have any chance at all of glimpsing reality in these countries. But I didn't want just any kids. I needed students who could see, in their own narrow but deep way, the water they were swimming in, if that makes sense. So students who could compare their school in Finland or Poland or Korea to a school in America. And luckily there are 30,000 teenagers who every year go on study abroad programs for various reasons. They either come here to the U.S. or they and go to public school or they leave the U.S. and go to another country. So I found three students who became my sort of field agents that I could follow and learn from. And they were my fixers, you know, <laughs> on the ground, which every, every reporter needs, uh, particularly in a foreign country. Amanda, as you set out your case, you're taking us into several different countries. But before getting there, let me just ask you, the, the, the PISA test and, and the documentation that set up your ability to do this, it kind of originates in Germany. And what your book told me I really didn't realize is that America is not the only country worried and very self-conscious about its educational system. Germany apparently is, too. Right. You know, no, actually, I mean, you know, Germany and these other countries are even more obsessed than we are with their international standings. And there's something reassuring about this in a way. Um, but Germany was an example of a place where, you know, they really thought that they had they had figured out the model for education. And they uh, felt pretty pretty good about their school system. And when the PISA test came out, you know, there had been other tests, obviously, other international tests. And those typically tended to measure either younger students or they looked uh, specifically at, you know, knowledge that you'd absorbed through your curriculum and less at your ability to take that knowledge and do something useful with it, which I think, you know, is you know, really the, the ultimate Absolutely. goal, right? Yeah. So, um, so when those first PISA results came out from the 2000 test, the Germans were devastated, uh, you know, there, it was called a, a tragedy for German education. And uh, Der Spiegel, on its cover, asked the question, are German students stupid? Uh, and there was a real anxiety about these results. What they ended up doing after debating this and arguing about it for a while was really using the results, though, to improve what they were doing, to learn from other countries. And they mm. did improve. And, and actually, PISA entered the German vernacular and even inspired a primetime TV quiz program called the PISA Show. Um, and and education, German education experts started making regular pilgrimages to Finland in, in search of redemption. So this was something that they did uh, experience as a painful uh, loss, but they did learn from it and improve. Amanda, I'm 54, so I'm a product of the public schools in the 1960s in terms of grade school. And uh, I am uh, either a, uh, a victor or a victim uh, of that system and of the panic that set in during the Cold War. Yeah. And uh, I, I experienced it as a child, but I didn't understand until I, it came later that not only did, uh, did JFK, President Kennedy, believe there was a missile gap, but Americans became convinced there was an education gap. Let me ask you, before we turn to, uh, to your look at the present, do you think that was actually true? 
It's interesting. You know, in many ways, the U.S. was outperforming much of the world on some measures of education at the time. You know, we were just educating more of our kids. Right. We were getting more of them through high school. So on a quantitative basis, we were actually doing pretty well. And what happened is we sort of stayed the same over time. You know, we've seen some slight increases in results for younger kids, again, particularly in reading. But, you know, we haven't changed much. Our education, probably the easiest thing to count, and even that's complicated, is your high school graduation rate. And we're around 78% at this point. And there's now about 20 countries that have higher high school graduation rates than we do. And almost all of them spend significantly less per student than we do. So, you know, it's not that we've gotten, that our system has gotten worse. It's more that we've stayed basically the same while other countries have dramatically improved around us. You know, one memory came very much to mind as I read your book. When I was uh, in, uh, I guess, what you'd call uh, now middle school, it was junior high school when I was going, we had this uh, this reading program called SRA. I think it was Scholastic Research Associates. And it was a product, of, I, I now realize in retrospect, of this panic over American education. And so you would read a text and you would answer questions about it. And then they would challenge you to do it faster next time, faster next time, faster next time. Uh, I think it actually gave me a lot of good reading and comprehension skills. But I, I later read that that was a Cold War program out of the panic that, that our kids were falling behind Russian kids. So, wow. you know, th- this is not a new panic. Uh, uh, you know, this, this is kind of an old panic. Right. The, the anxiety of, uh, you know, foreign takeovers is goes very deep in, in many countries and – uh, you know, I think it's easy to get hyperbolic. It's easy to uh, panic, as you said. It is also important, I think, to take a careful look, a deep breath, and try to try to learn from from these places. There are really very few countries. I mean, let me let me be real clear here. There are very few countries that have managed to pull this off at the scale of Finland and Korea. It's not that you know everyone is surpassing the United States. It's more that a few countries have managed to educate virtually all their kids to higher order thinking skills. And so that's that's something we can learn from. I see it actually as very hopeful, mm. you know, because once you, you see the movement that's happened all over the world and you visit these countries and you see that, you know, they have their own problems, they have their own debates, they don't have everything figured out, and yet they've pulled this off, it makes you realize that, you know, we could too. And so it's, it's really an encouraging one, and I hope... I hope provokes more uh, hope and optimism than anxiety, although I realize uh, the book does both of those things. That is a very interesting assessment. Amanda Ripley's book, The Smartest Kids in the World and How They Got That Way, skyrocketed to the New York Times bestseller list very shortly after its release. If nothing else, I think that tells us something about the anxiety here in the United States about our kids and education. Anxiety present among politicians and policymakers, educators, and, of course, American parents. But in order to find out why our kids are not the smartest kids in the world, at least by some statistical measures, she followed three kids as they went out into the world. And she tells us what they found in order that we might understand as well. I'll ask you to turn to those three countries of your central research, South Korea, Poland, and Finland, and just taking them one by one, let me let me ask you, where are they and what did you learn? First of all, South Korea, what's going on there? 
South Korea is a fascinating laboratory for what can happen when you create a culture in which the most important thing is to get into a great college and get a great test score that will get you in there. And you combine that mentality. I mean, we have that mentality in pockets around the U.S. It's not like that's foreign to us. But you combine that mentality with something else, which is a mindset that if you are not doing well, if you are not doing well academically, it is simply because you aren't working hard enough and you need more help. Full stop. So there is this kind of ferocious belief that hard work, practice, and help can lead all kids to greatness if they just try again and again and again. That mindset, that kind of growth mindset, as, as Carol Dweck would call it, is really powerful, you know, when you get it, when you, when you spread it across a whole society, because it tells kids that their performance in school is not a matter of whether they're good at math or their innate talent or their, their background, but really a matter of what they do. And it may not always be true, let me be clear, you know, <laughs> but, yeah. but it is an incredibly empowering mindset that can lead to, that can lead to great stress and also great achievement. So to answer your question specifically, the student I followed was from a suburb of Minneapolis uh, in Minnesota, which is one of the top performing states in our country, really a standout in all subjects, still not performing at the level of Korea or Finland, but very respectable outcomes. This student, Eric, went to a suburban high school that had you know, beautiful facilities, far better than most schools in Korea or Finland, by the way, and... He followed the International Baccalaureate track at his school. He worked very hard. He did theater. He did other things. And, you know, he had a sort of unusual but uh, quintessential experience in the American system, you know, really at the top of what we can offer kids. So then he decides, <laughs> wrongly as it turns out, that he would like a break from this. You know, he's kind of burned out from how hard he's been working in high school. So he decides he wants to go on one of these uh, foreign exchange programs before he goes to college. And he decides that South Korea is a, is a really captivating place, which it is, and that this would be a good place to take a break <laughs> and go study for a year. And it turns out he realizes on his first day of high school in Busan, South Korea, a big booming city on the coast, he realizes that he is not going to get a break, that actually the students at this high school are working on an entirely different plane of the students at his school back in Minnesota. Yes. And that, in fact, they're overworked and they're exhausted. And he, he spends much of the rest of the year debating whether he should drop out of high school because he loves Korea but finds school to be pretty oppressive. You describe this really well. In your book, you, you describe a particular transitional scene in Eric's life. You write, Lying on his bed back at the host family's apartment, Eric thought more about what the boy had told him. Korean kids essentially went to school twice every weekday. He found one possible explanation for Korea's PISA scores, and it was depressing. Kids learned a lot, but they spent a ridiculous amount of time doing so. They had math classes at school and math classes in hagwons. That means after school, as you explain. He was astounded by the inefficiency of it all. In Korea, school never stopped, end quote. That's right. I mean, and, and he would see... And I saw, when I visited him in Korea, students, you'd walk by a classroom and a third of the kids would be asleep. You know, not nodding off, but, but flat out sleeping with their face on the desk. 
because they were so tired from staying up so late studying at their test prep cram schools that they all go to after school, which is crazy. And everyone there will tell you this is crazy. Nobody, nobody thinks that it's a good system. They all would like to be more like Finland or more like the U.S. in some cases. But the demand, the anxiety, speaking of anxiety, is so high that it's hard to disrupt that cycle. Well, you present a picture in the classroom in which during the school day, that is the actual public school, what was uh, we call a high school, you have teachers walking around tapping students on the head because they're sleeping, tapping them with a back scratcher on the head, uh, a love stick, the students call it, in order to wake them up. But you also make a, a rather counterintuitive point, and that is that the real educational investment these kids are making is not what takes place at school, but what takes place in the test prep uh, programs their parents put them into after school. That that appears to be where they're putting in all their intellectual energy, and they're just exhausted. Right, and it's it, it's a wild thing to see. So I, I eventually realized I need to shift my gaze from the public system, which is interesting in many ways, but I had to really look at these hogwans, these after-school tutoring academies, these test prep places that are a really huge market in Korea. It's It's on a level that we can't quite imagine here. I mean, these, these companies are traded on the stock exchange. Big banks like Morgan Stanley make investments in these, country, in these companies. And they literally are redundant school systems. So With mo- multi-million there, dollar teachers. Some, the most successful teachers can become millionaires there. That's right, because it's disaggregated. I mean, students choose their teacher. They don't choose this, the academy. They typically... They decide based and very based very very much on who gets the best test results. They decide which teacher is the best. A lot of this is word of mouth, but a lot of it's data driven. And they sign up for those teachers. And so the more kids you get signing up for you, the more you get paid. And they, these these really successful hagwon teachers become literally celebrities. I mean, literal millionaire celebrities in these countries. Um, and it's 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 the closest I've ever seen to a free market for education, which means there are some things that are dysfunctional about it because the more money you have, the better education you can get. Mm. And there are some things that are really cool about it, like teachers are paid according to their value in society. Meeting and interviewing a millionaire teacher, I meant multiple millionaire teachers, is a very cool thing and very inspiring. And I don't know, I obviously don't think this is the way to get there, but, you know, when the Korean government surveyed teenagers, they found that the teenagers vastly preferred their hagwon teachers to their regular teachers. And the reasons they gave were that their their tutoring teachers were never giving up on them, uh-huh. that they always tried new things if they weren't understanding something. They really seemed to care about them, and they were driven to get results in a way that the public school teachers were not, according to the students. So there's a lot to be learned from how these places are run, and they're sort of best practices, even if we wouldn't want to follow that model. So take us from Korea to Finland. My favorite part of your uh, chapter on Finland is is where you actually describe a classroom. You write uh, the most obvious things were those that were missing. There were no high-tech interactive whiteboards in the classroom. There were no police officer in the hallway. And uh, then you wrote that the student who was there, the young woman, began to see more important distinctions, the kind that a visiting adult would not see. That sounds really interesting. That's right. And I never would have picked up on this, but for Kim, the student that I followed, 
Kim came from rural Oklahoma, uh, where she was the daughter of a single mother who was a teacher. Neither Kim nor her mother had ever left the United States, but Kim didn't feel like she fit in in her high school. Um, she never really felt connected to her to her school experience. She, she was very curious about the world for whatever reason, and she heard about these exchange programs, and she raised $10,000 all on her own in a remarkable quest to go spend a year in Finland, partly because she read online that Finland had the smartest kids in the world. And so she goes off, and she's placed in rural Finland with another single mother, as it turns out, and she goes off to school. And one of the things that she notices, as you alluded to, is that all the kids seemed very similar to kids that she knew in Oklahoma. But, you know, they weren't all intellectual heavyweights, you know. They, right. A lot of them were, you know, complaining about certain teachers, about the work they had to do. They're and kids. some of them were texting in class. They're normal, yeah. And this was true in every country, right? I mean, the kids are very similar. What was different that she picked up on was that they seemed to be buying into the idea that what they were doing in school all day long was going to impact how interesting their lives would be. They seemed to care more about school, even as they complained about it and even as they rolled their eyes. They seemed to buy into it in a way that not even the students in her honors classes in Oklahoma were doing, according to, to Kim's impression of things. So she actually, at one point, talks to a couple of the Finnish girls about this to try to suss out why, <laughs> you know, why do they care? I mean, you know, it's sort of a hard thing to ask, though, of a student who hasn't known any other culture. So sure. she she asks, why do you care? And they're sort of perplexed. And eventually one of them says, well, you know, it's school. How else are we going to get into a good college and get a good job? Um, so they're they're connecting the dots in a way that's pretty pretty logical. And Kim instead starts to wonder why the kids in Oklahoma were not connecting the dots, since that's also true here. I mean, your life outcomes are, as I don't need to tell you, dramatically influenced by your how hard you work and how well you do and how far you go in school. You More so, actually, than most countries in the world. I mean, the U.S. rewards skills lavishly, statistically speaking, sure. and punishes the absence of skills severely. You point to something in Finland that, again, is as equally counterintuitive as what you discovered in South Korea, and that is that what was different in Finland was the teacher. And what made the teacher different was the teacher education system. Yeah, one of the really inspiring lessons about Finland is that they've been they've really invested in quality over quantity. Sometimes that was by accident, sometimes it was on purpose. But over the years, they have invested in people over, you know, numbers. So let me give you an example. The teacher training colleges used to be like ours. In the United States, they used to have a whole variety of different education colleges of wildly varying quality and selectivity, just as we do. We educate twice as many teachers as we need in 1,400 schools of education of wildly varying quality. And then they did something that almost no country has done, but all the top education superpowers have done. They made it much, much harder to get into education colleges. They actually shut down their existing teacher colleges, and move them to the most selective universities in the country. And that meant a few things. I mean, obviously, that meant that the people who were trying to become teachers had the advantage of a strong education themselves, typically, which makes it easier to teach higher-order thinking skills. But, you know, 
there's plenty of research showing that having a high GPA does not a great teacher make. I mean, that is not that is not enough. But it did other things too. You know, so once these teachers are in college and they go to school for five years to become a teacher, they study their subject deeply for the first part of that training for years and then whatever subject they're going to teach, and then they study education, and then they have a full year of student teaching in one of their, you know, teaching high schools, one of the the country's sort of, you know, highest-performing schools where they have veteran educators mentoring them on a daily basis, which we know is incredibly valuable to teachers to have that hands-on experience, whereas American teachers typically have a semester of student teaching, and they often do not have a teacher mentor who has the time or ability to really help them improve. Um, So it's an example of a case where they made a decision early on to raise the bar at the beginning of the profession um, and really start from the beginning. And I think what I hadn't expected and what I realized once I was in Finland was that that decision has a really strong signaling effect. So in addition to, you know, the different caliber of students they're getting, it sends a message to everyone else in the country that you are serious about education. You know, because we say all the time here how hard it is to be a teacher and how important education is. But then it is one of the easiest majors in the country in many, many colleges, and kids know that, you know. Those students in those colleges know that. And so the Finnish kids I met knew how hard their teachers had worked to get there. Many people I met in Finland had gotten rejected from education college. They didn't get in their first or second time. And this is not something you hear in the United States. And the other thing it does is it sends a message to parents and taxpayers and politicians, you know, that you now have the best educated people in the country in this workforce. So you better give them some autonomy and some respect and some better pay. And that's a much easier case to make from that vantage point as opposed to saying, you'd better give us respect because we have a strong union. We've got to look more quickly at Poland, but just just summarize what you found there, because that too, in fact, that especially may be relevant to where we are here in the United States. Poland is is a fascinating place with a very complicated, tortured history of uh, invasion and communism and all manner of challenges. Poland also has a significant poverty rate among kids. It is a place where actually the student I followed, Tom, was from Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, and he went to Wrocław, Poland, which is a big city um, in Poland. And one of his best friends at school was, you know, mugged at knife point shortly before I got there when he was walking home from school in a sort of sketchy neighborhood next to Tom's school. So this was, you know, in some ways, not all, but in some ways more similar to some, not all, of American states. And what they did in Poland was that in about 2000, right around the time the PISA started, they were feeling great economic anxiety. And they were afraid that they they wanted to be part of the European Union in such a way that they would get good jobs and not the worst jobs that no one else wanted to do. You know, they were trying to break away from their communist past in many ways. And They did a number of things, including agreeing on a sort of core list of standards for what kids should know that was more rigorous than what they had before, which is, you know, something that 45 states 
in the U.S. are in the midst of debating, including Kentucky, which was the first to adopt the Common Core state standard. And they also delayed tracking of kids. So the United States divides kids up by ability earlier and more aggressively than most developed countries at this point. Poland decided that, you know, the research showed the later you do that, the better everyone does. So the longer you wait, the better the system performs. So they they moved until age 15, the time at which they would stream kids into a more academic sort of, you know, advanced placement university track versus vocational track. And that, among other changes, seemed to be the most impactful one, where they saw their kids going from below average for the developed world to at or above average. Um, So it was a remarkable and very quick change in Poland, and there are lots of reasons that happened, but but that delay in tracking seemed to be very important. When you come back to the United States after visiting these three different countries, you're very clear about what you think can be learned and and what probably shouldn't be learned. And uh, I'm going to encourage people as they read your book to actually track down those analyses and proposals. But I want to zero in on your chapter entitled Drive, because I think this is where Many listeners to this program would, uh, w- would receive some immediate benefit and encouragement. You write that when you come back to the United States and you look at how educational attainment actually takes place, that parents are hugely involved. And you ask a very interesting question. And In fact, I'm going to read to you from your own book. You write, by contrast, other parental efforts yielded big returns. When children were young, parents who read to them every day or almost every day had kids who performed much better in reading all around the world by the time they were 15. It sounded like a public service cliche. Read to your kids. Could it be that simple? And then you say, yes, it could, which is not to say it was uninteresting. In other words, reading to your children in a specific time of, a type of reading that you, uh, you describe has a massive impact. It does. And, you know, I'm glad you brought this up because as a parent – of a public school child in D.C., I found this research to be incredibly refreshing and informative. You know, there was a study of parenting in 13 different countries and regions around the world, and they looked at what the parents had done and then linked it to the same children's PISA scores. And what they found is that reading to your child, as you say, also talking to your child about their day as they got older, talking to your child about the news of the day, even adults reading for pleasure on their own was strongly correlated with teenagers who became critical uh, readers themselves and who enjoyed reading. But there were other results, too, <laughs> including the fact that parents who volunteered in their schools, their children's schools' extracurricular activities, in the PTA, those kinds of things, actually had children who performed worse on the PISA test of critical thinking and reading by the time they were 15. And there's some U.S. research that supports this idea. It's a complicated stew, right, how parental behavior influences students. We know it is very powerful. And there is a a lot of evidence, actually, that American parents are quite involved in their kids' education. They don't always get credit for this. Yeah, but this is where you get into trouble and controversy, and I think this is what (laughs) really gets interesting because – You did end up on the front cover of The Atlantic magazine saying that, if I could paraphrase your article, that one of the greatest enemies of educational attainment is our culture's fascination with sports. We have kids who are far more involved in sports than in actual learning. 
Right, and I don't have a problem with sports. I love sports. I played sports all my life. My child plays sports. But we are the only country that makes it a core mission of school. In most countries, kids play sports outside of school. They do pickup games. They do rec leagues. They, you know, it's, it's not part of what principals and teachers have to think about every day. So, you know, sports itself is not, you know, the problem. The problem is a broader lack of focus and consensus about what school is for. And kids pick up on that, you know, and parents pick up on that. You know, and my child's school is constantly asking me to do things that have nothing to do with learning. Yes. That does not happen in Finland. Yeah, absolutely. Finnish elementary schools do not ask their parents to hold auctions. That does not happen. Mm. So, you know, there there's a limited amount of time and energy. And if we don't have a clear consensus and focus on what matters, then it is easy to do things that feel good and that do create community bonds that are important but don't actually lead to helping your child learn to think for himself. And there's a place for everything. I thought uh, when I was reading this chapter in your book, I thought, you know, this is where you really find out what parents believe in and are excited about and put a priority upon. When the, the child comes home or the teenager comes home from school, are they asked about sports or are they asked about learning? Th- 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 those are two different things, and you have to believe that at least in many homes, they, there's a lot more conversation about the sports than about anything that could be remotely described as truly educational. Right, and there's actually, I mean, it, we have figured out the growth mindset that we know. I mean, there's a ton of research around this that, you know, there's certain mindsets that parents can help their children cultivate. It's actually maybe easier in some ways than cultivating academic skills that will help them thrive for their entire lives. And we have this down for sports. <laughs> we have figured this out. I mean, parents are pretty direct with their kids, especially as they get older, about what they did right and wrong in a basketball game and how hard they need to work to do better. They don't protect them from failure to the right. same degree, especially, again, as they're in, you know teenagers. In fact, it is one of the only places where American kids get very honest feedback about their performance. American 15-year-olds rank number one in the world for the percentage who say they routinely get high grades in math. Number one in the world, way above Finland and Korea and Japan and Canada and other places with much, much stronger math scores. So, you know, it seems like if we could transfer some of that, some of the best practices that we take toward training for sports into academics. Yeah, that's really insightful. I mean, we could do this. You know, it's not an inconceivable concept. The last thing I want to ask you about is uh, is something that also I found really interesting in your book, and that is where you talk about parenting styles. Uh, you suggest there are four basic categories, authoritarian parents. They're the strict disciplinarians, the because-I-said-so parents. Permissive parents who tend to be indulgent and diverse to conflict. And uh, then you have uh, parents who are neglectful, and uh, that's pretty self-explanatory. And uh, and then also authoritative, not authoritarian, but authoritative. And you say the word is like a mashup of authoritarian and permissive. These parents inhabited the sweet spot between the two. They were warm, responsive, and close to their kids. But as their children got older, they gave them freedom to explore and to fail and to make their own choices. But they also set clear, bright limits, rules that were not to be negotiated. That's right, and and that is something that culture does inform, right? I, I did see that that style of parenting anecdotally in Finland and Korea. Kids are given more freedom to fail and recover, and I think that's 
that's something that we are working on here. You know, we have a strange system right now where we don't want kids to fail until they are 18, and then all bets are off. And you see this in the debates about raising standards for what kids should know in different states. You know, we don't, we get very uncomfortable if we threaten to not give a child a diploma because, you know, he can't pass a series of tests of basic skills. We feel like if he came to school every day and, you know, tried, more or less, then, you know, he should get a diploma. But then once he gets to college or tries to get a job, all bets are off, right? We have almost 40% of our kids going into remedial classes, paying for college but not getting college credit, going into debt and repeating, you know, high school English, which is incredibly demoralizing. And we have kids who have to take basic skills tests to get jobs now. I mean, to just go right into a job out of high school, you, you typically have to take some kind of test for many, many decent jobs, and they're not able to pass them. So, you know, we, it would be good, I think, if we could shift that a little so that kids experienced failure and recovery while they were still kids and not when they were adults and kind of on their own. The book is The Smartest Kids in the World and How They Got That Way. The author is Amanda Ripley. It's published by Simon & Schuster. Amanda Ripley, thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. I very much enjoyed the conversation with Amanda Ripley about her book, The Smartest Kids in the World and How They Got That Way. I think one of the most refreshing aspects of this book is its absolute candor and honesty and the fact that what Amanda Ripley is trying to do is to introduce us to how education is considered and lived out in the lives of kids and their schools in at least three particular countries, very important countries for this consideration, Poland and Finland and South Korea. But she doesn't come back and say, here's exactly what we need to learn from this place, and here's how we need to change our system. Instead, she points to what can be learned, and she also recognizes the cultural and societal particularities that establish why South Koreans learn and teach as they do, why the same is true in Poland and also in Finland. But what she brings back is a wealth of material for us to think about. And when she gets back and she looks at kids here in the United States, she asks some very important questions and she gets to some really important material. I think Christian parents looking at this book will be particularly interested in what she has to say about the role of parents in the lives of their children, especially in their educational lives. I was really interested in that part of the conversation in which Amanda tells us that it is only in sports, in the athletic life, that many American children and teenagers are given honest feedback about what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong and how they can improve. That's a really critical insight. Not at the expense of sports, but understanding that a greater responsibility is that kids have the same kind of feedback, honest feedback, helpful feedback, and other areas of their life, including learning. But the role of parents is so huge in this book, and that perhaps is the most important lesson we can gain from the entire enterprise. For instance, Amanda Ripley is very clear, and she's eloquent when she writes about the simple fact that parents read for pleasure adds so much is correlated to such a high degree with the educational attainment of their children. Thinking about her own generation and what it meant for parents to read to kids, she writes this, After all, what did reading to your kids mean? Done well, it meant teaching them about the world, sharing stories about faraway places, about smoking volcanoes and little boys who were sent to bed without dinner. It meant asking them questions about the book, questions that encouraged them to think for themselves. It meant sending a signal to kids about the importance of not just reading, 
but of learning about all kinds of new things. As she continues, as kids got older, the parental involvement that seemed to matter most was different but related. All over the world, parents who discussed movies, books, and current affairs with their kids had teenagers who performed better at reading. Here again, parents who engaged their kids in conversation about things larger than themselves were essentially teaching their kids to become thinking adults. Unlike volunteering in schools, those kinds of parental efforts delivered clear and convincing results, even across different countries and different income levels. Then listen to this sentence. In fact, 15-year-olds whose parents talked about complicated social issues with them not only scored better on statistical tests, but reported enjoying reading more overall. Later, she writes this, If parents simply read for pleasure at home on their own, their children were more likely to enjoy reading too. That pattern held fast across very different countries and different levels of family income. Kids could see what parents valued, and it mattered more than what parents said. End quote. Finally, looking at the issue of parental styles, the breakdown of parenting styles into four different categories is perhaps too restrictive, but it's still illuminating and very interesting. We've looked at this before in terms of parenting books and approaches to parenting, but in this case, she goes back to this fourfold differentiation between parents who are strict disciplinarians, their reason is simply because I said so, and then permissive parents who are the opposite, they're averse to conflict and they give their kids indulgence and inordinate freedom. They acted more like friends than parents, she explains. And then neglectful parents are just what the word implies. They're neglectful. They are disconnected, emotionally distant, and often absent. And then there's the fourth option, authoritative. These authoritative parents actually follow a model that is more clearly scriptural, even if they do not know it. Authoritative parents, whether they recognize it or not, secular or Christian, are basically following a far more clearly biblical script. These parents understand that they are indeed to parent. They set very clear guidelines, boundaries, rules. They put a great deal of responsibility on their kids. They don't negotiate the rules, and they set very clear consequences for breaking those rules. But on the other hand, they're moving their kids toward increasing freedom, the responsible use of that freedom, and they are working their children towards becoming thinking adults, not keeping them in a permanent childhood or a perpetual adolescence. That should give us some indication of why so many young people are having such a difficult time growing up in America today. The two extremes on this scale, with authoritarian parents on one hand and permissive parents on the other, both of them actually lead to something short of thinking adults in terms of their children. But that sweet spot of authoritative parenting, that's actually something that we can recognize as being right. And it's right because the word authority is there. Parental authority is present. But it's an authority that is moving children towards adulthood, not keeping them forever children to be kept at home. She cites the researcher Jelani Madara at Northwestern University, who found that kids with authoritative parents had higher academic achievement levels, fewer symptoms of depression, and fewer problems with aggression, disobedience, and other antisocial behaviors. She writes, other studies have found similar benefits. Authoritative parents trained their kids to be resilient, and it seems to work. Without doubt, Amanda Ripley offers some very clear suggestions and prescriptions for our society as it deals with the education of our young people, children and teenagers especially. She raises the very hard reality that we do not allow these kids to fail until age 18 when all of a sudden many of them do catastrophically fail. Furthermore, she takes an honest look at how we're doing amongst the other nations, and she recognizes that we are a huge, complex, diverse nation, and we're not doing as poorly as some of the prophets of doom would indicate. On the other hand, we're not doing as well as we would want to do. And it's not just a matter of geopolitics. It's a matter of our own concern for our own children and the children of our neighbors as well. 
Perhaps the greatest take-home from all of this is the role of parents, and we're not surprised by that. It comes back to the fact that you can change many things in the schools, but if it doesn't change at home, it's never going to actually lead to transformation. The role of parents in this turns out to be, and we're not surprised by this, absolutely central and crucial. And it comes down to some simple things we all know we are to do. Read to our kids. Let our kids see us reading for pleasure. And parent our children in such a way that we set very clear expectations and demonstrate true parental authority, but an authority that's moving our children towards adulthood, and in particular, towards a thinking adulthood. And as Christian parents, should always keep in mind a faithful adulthood. At the end of the day, the greatest benefit of reading this book is not that we would try to have just the smartest kids in the world, but that we would understand how to relate better to our kids and the kids of our neighbors and the kids in this culture in such a way that every one of them becomes, insofar as it is possible, a thinking adult. And for Christian parents, how every one of our kids can become a more faithful Christian living in the very real world. Thanks again to Amanda Ripley for thinking with me today. Before I close, I want to invite you to join us on the campus of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary on March 14 through 15, 2014 for the renowned Youth Conference. This is a conference that will help train your middle and high school students about how to think and to live as faithful Christians. We'll look forward to joining again on March 14 to 15, 2014 for the renowned Youth Conference. For more information, go to eventsatsouthern.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Mowley.